I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone. This is producer Rachel Kanya, and today we have Anthony Pompliano, who is co-founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital, where he manages capital on behalf of institutional investors. Anthony believes crypto and other digital currencies are the way of the future because of their ability to be both secure and transparent. In this episode, he and Ian discuss the ways in which crypto has become popular, even in its infancy, and the path it will take as it matures into a widely used method of payment and asset management. Stay tuned for more from Anthony Pompliano of Morgan Creek Digital. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And on the other line, on the other coast, Pomp, what's going on? How are you, sir? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, when we were hanging out a couple years, actually, I think that was like three years ago now, the crypto world was truly in its infancy. Now it is, I guess, a little bit older. What what age would you say that the crypto industry is right now? Oh, it's a newborn. It, you got to think that... Uh, let's say 40, 50 million people probably have interacted with, uh, with cryptocurrency, I think I've seen estimates say. And so out of a world with 7 billion people, you know, that's essentially nothing. Um, and I think that we are, uh, those of us that are like really, really deep in the weeds, sometimes forget how early that this stuff is. And it's also when you're reminded though, it's super exciting. So I think that we're super early and, and hopefully that uh, the industry will continue to mature quickly. Yeah, and I think, you were one of the first people who I saw that, I don't want to say jump ship, jumped on the pirate ship, but I want to say recognize the opportunity and went all in. I think there were some people, obviously, you know, the Fred Wilsons of the world that had talked about it, that had talked about their investments, that had talked about things like that. But you were the first person that kind of saw this, that I, that I saw of, that was very public about it that said, this, I see it now. I see that this is the future now, and I want to be at the cutting edge very early on. What was the impetus for you making that decision? I thought I missed it, which <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, sounds pretty ridiculous at this point. But uh, my core thesis was really around, uh, we're moving into a digital world. And in that world, we need digitally native assets, digitally native uh, accounting, and digitally native contracts. I only figured out those three components once I started looking in crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin, et cetera. But this idea that uh, we are moving into a digital world had been an investing theme that uh, my partner, Jason Williams, and I uh, had invested along for quite a bit. And what's funny is uh, alongside that, we also had invested already in a number of uh, companies that you would think were in the crypto space today, but they have nothing to do with crypto. So one of them prevents the banks from generating so much revenue through overdraft fees. So it's an overdraft protection for those that don't get uh, that free protection from their banks. Uh, another is anti-money laundering software. There's an automatic or, or kind of an automated uh, underwriting and lending business, those types of businesses. And so we had been in and around kind of fintech and, and similar uh, trends. And when 
we saw the opportunity with blockchain and crypto, it just became so obvious to us that not only was it going to be a big part of the future, but also there were tons of really smart, uh, successful entrepreneurs that were running into the space and they were going to need investors to partner with. And so we said, you know, rather than this be kind of 25 or 30% of our focus, if we make it 100% of our focus, let's go try to be the best in the world at this one thing. Um, and that really led us to, uh, to kind of double and triple down uh, and do so in a public way. And I think with that, you also got this rise of kind of crypto culture and kind of the culture within the culture that started following what you were doing. I mean, do you think that positioning yourself that way and seeing what was happening being so early, especially with a lot of the startups that you were looking at and and looking at and potentially investing in, do you think that that helped get a lot of a, you know, what, what we call in the military, you have uh, some mass effects there where instead of just the outbound, which is the traditional or a traditional way that some investors, when they're starting, you know, early on in ind- industry that are pounding the pavements, you started to see inbound of companies that they wanted to work with an investor that knew what the hell they were talking about, that wanted to be around this industry. Was that something that like, was exciting or was it kind of daunting? I mean, did you have like a ton of inbound? I mean, what, what did that look like? Yeah, I think there's two components there, right? One is um, I definitely knew that there was, there was a benefit to participating in an industry for all the right reasons, right? My partner and I have done a lot of things where we make no money, but it benefits the community or pushes adoption. Uh, We spend a lot of time doing things that are not directly uh, beneficial to our business. And it's because we actually believe in this stuff, right? The the idea that there are a lot of people who uh, can benefit from the rise of uh, decentralized digital currencies. The idea that, you know, every stock bond currency commodity is going to be digital uh, and what the impact that can have on wealth generation for those who don't have access to that today. This stuff is things that we would likely do even if we couldn't make money at it. But we have been able to position ourselves where if we are right and we are successful in making this stuff happen, we will also make money, right? And so it's exciting to be able to work on the things you really care about and have an opportunity to make money at them. With that said, I think that there's a lot of folks who actually believe similar things to what we believe. They're just not very public about it. And the risk with being so public is that you're wrong in public, right? Or you get branded as uh, kind of in a, in a hole, right? That's all you do. And, and we really said, look, this is all we are going to do, right? And so we're comfortable with that risk. And we're actually comfortable being wrong in public, right? We, we think that the authenticity and the transparency of saying what we believe when we believe it and having the vulnerability of being wrong in public is actually important, right? We wish more people would do that. And so um, I think that's really where you see kind of this, you know, no fear approach to uh, saying what we believe and, and, you know, fully being aware that if we are wrong in public, it'll be painful, right? And so we better do our work and make sure that what we say is what we believe and and has a high probability of being right or or else, you know, we're going to feel the pain for it later. It's the ultimate skin in the game, if you will. Yeah. And I think that that skin in the game is what makes you magnetic. And obviously, you know, I've, I've known you for a couple of years and we have uh, a shared experience that we we're both in the military, although we didn't necessarily serve, you know, together or anything like that. 
but I think you have a very like authentic way about you. You are, you know, always yourself and you were a founder. You you founded a company, which I think is something that when you're talking to investors, you know, we did an investing week here on Mission Daily and Chad talked about that a lot. One of the questions, uh, one of the 50 questions asked founders is, you know, if they have started a company, what was it like? And if they haven't, why, why did they never do that? Do you think that your ability to like look at these investments and these founders and, and the fact that you've been there before, do you think that that helps like inform your decision making in an area that is like clouded with uncertainty? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different things here. So one is both of my partners have built bigger businesses than I ever built. Right. And so uh, I, I like to joke around and say, I know nothing about building companies compared to those two. But, but at the same time, I, I think that founders are drawn to the different experiences that the three of us have. You know, one has uh, spent most of his life in the asset management business and, and wall street hedge funds and kind of a macro thinker. The other built and sold a half a billion dollar healthcare company you know, manage 1,400 employees. And then I come from much more of the growth and product and marketing side. And so when you put those three together, it's actually a really unique combination of skills and experiences. But also at the same time, when, you know, a founder says to me, hey, how should I think about hiring a COO? Well, I've got some opinions, but I usually just defer to my partner who's done it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and done it at scale and, and kind of seen the impact of those decisions, et cetera. And so I think that it's really being self-aware about where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are and trying to build a team of other people where their strengths are your weaknesses, right? And kind of, you know, it's the same thing that you see in the military. It's the same thing when you're building startups. Um, or the same thing with, you know, us coming together to, to uh, build an asset management firm. That ability to, you know, kind of be intellectually honest with yourself about like, look, that person is better than me at X, Y, and Z. And if we work together, it's going to be a one plus one equals three or four scenario. Is it kind of weird to be in this position in asset management when clearly, you know, you know, Pomp in 2013 probably was not thinking about anything like this. And then, you know, here you are six years later, uh, you know, in the thick of it. I mean, for a lot of our listeners, one of the things that we talk about is, you know, looking back six months ago and saying, like, I don't even recognize that person, like, because I've grown so much as a person. Do you think that this is something where, you know, each step in the process, having that growth experience, have that marketing experience, working at big companies, finding your own company, all of that led you to this point where seeing how money impacts startups, how startups can build things that have exponential value is that kind of like a weird place to kind of end up being on the money side of things? No, look, I, I think it, in hindsight, everything seems natural evolution, right? In terms of how you get to where you are. There was never a plan, right? I don't pretend that I had some 10-year plan or anything like that. Uh, I kind of just did the things I wanted to do at the moment. And, uh, and here I ended up. But, but I do think that uh, as you just get more experience, you mature, you, you have um, a variety of experiences, you start to realize that there's different ways that you can use resources to accomplish things you want to accomplish. And today, you know, I think the best use of my time and my resources is to uh, manage capital on behalf of institutional investors and help invest it in an ecosystem that's nascent today, but hopefully will grow to be very large. But that may change in the future, right? And two years from now, I may say, you know what, 
investing was fun. I'm happy to have partnered with all these great founders. I'm going to go build a company again. I think it really does matter, you know, where you are in your life, what, what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and again, it just comes down to how do you coordinate resources and time to, uh, to accomplish those goals. And so I don't really kind of believe in having these big, long, you know, multi-year plans. It's more just do what you believe to do right now. Yeah. I, did you see the, I'm sure you did, but uh, Chamath, his, his letter to investors the other day, it was pretty wild. <laughs> For those of our listeners who don't know, you could, you could Google it, but yeah, it, it is pretty wild. Yeah, and look, he, Tamath actually uh, started the growth team at Facebook. And so my, my first experience ever with Chamath or knowing about Chamath, anything, was basically people talking about him in an incredibly genuine awe, right? Oh, Chamath helped do this and that. And, and just everyone spoke so, so positively about him. And, and I never really understood why. But then I started to hear more about him, talk to more people on the team. And uh, a lot of what he's saying now actually resonates, right, with what people told me at Facebook, which is just he says what he means, right? Totally. And he's not scared to shy away from the unpopular ideas. And if you can get past the hyperbole of what he says, and you really listen to what he's talking about in both the letter, and then he also recently did a podcast with Kara Swisher. And he's actually right about most of the things he's saying. Right. I mean, this idea that, you know, most businesses in Silicon Valley are being subsidized by venture capitalists and it's this, you know, hey, the company's going well as long as somebody's willing to pay a higher price for it. Right. Like that's actually probably more true than not. His ability to say, look, I want to do the things I want to do in life. And if people don't like it, that's not my problem. That's actually probably, you know, a correct sentiment. Now, could he deliver it in a better way or kind of a more uh, nuanced and polished way? Sure. But that's part of what makes Chamath Chamath, right, is that he's actually willing to say what he means exactly as bluntly as he means it. And it's for you and I to synthesize from there, right? So, so I, I tend to uh, look at people like that and, and say, uh, if you don't like him, you'll kind of move along and won't pay him any mind. But if you like that, then uh, then he's the perfect guy who's kind of the poster child of uh, that type of communication. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that is, you know, unique to him and unique to some some folks that we kind of get in the public, especially in the, you know, the media sphere about like that we have to like everybody. It's like, guess what? We don't. There's a, There's people who you get to you know, decide that you like and you want to hang out with or that you want to be part of their business or see what they have to say and that that person's for you and other people where it's not that it's not that way. And I think a lot of times we just get into some group think about everybody needs to be uh, 100%, you know, approval for the way that they do business. And, you know, some people are, you know, some people have a no a-holes policy. Some people have uh, smart people only welcome or you know, whatever whatever the case may be. But I think we, we just get into some group think and some traps there when we try to be everything to everybody. Yeah, and, and one of the hardest things in the world is to be an independent thinker. It is a learned skill, right? It, it is human nature to go with the crowd. And once you begin to understand the benefits to independent thinking, you begin to realize that it's more about courage than anything else and, and trust of yourself um, and kind of uh, believing in what you think. It's like learning a playbook, right? And yeah. you can implement it over and over and over again. And, and you know, look, I, I, uh, I probably fall into the consensus thought 
just as often as anybody else. But there's times where we've proven that we can think independently. Uh, we've made unpopular decisions that have paid off either through social capital, through kind of qualitative results or quantitative results. And in every single one of those scenarios, there was kind of a pattern recognition, right? There was, you know, some kind of either red flags or milestones or, or criteria that we saw that caused us to think the way we did. And so the more experience that you have independently thinking, the easier it becomes, right? And so I think that's part of what people have to understand is you're not going to be right every time. You're actually not going to think independently every time, but you can actually work at this skill and, and get the muscle memory. And, and if uh, you do it the right way, it becomes a huge advantage that other people just don't have. Yeah. And I think that some of that kind of textbook, you know, non-group think stuff that you've put out there, you know, your off the chain podcast, which is great, which I highly recommend everybody check out and your newsletter is fantastic. Also, I recommend everybody, all of our listeners go and check that out. But I think you put out a lot of stuff that is a, a little bit, I don't want to say counterculture, but definitely stuff that might push people into a place that they're uncomfortable with. Uh, and I think that that's the brilliant thing about crypto and about this technology and this asset class is that it forces people to consider things that they had never considered before in their life. And when you... You know, we had Alex Gladstein on talking about how this cryptocurrency can change countries in the third world, how it is actually changing people's lives, how there's so many instances of this. And I think part of the issue with how this is like evangelized publicly is that we talk about the price of Bitcoin and then you got kind of this like crypto bro mentality of people thinking that the only people who are interested in this or this certain type of person and all this, but they don't look at all of the use cases. You know, you've talked about recently in your newsletter about, you know, Bumblebee Foods is going to use blockchain for how they track tuna, the yellowfin tuna from the time that it's caught to when it hits store shelves. I mean, things like this that are so practical and interesting and really elegant ways that technology can reduce waste, that can improve people's lives, that can do things that we never thought was possible. Could you talk about some of those use cases, some of the use cases that you see every single day that people are going to be blown away by? Yeah, look, the, the number one most important use case is Bitcoin. And I always tell people that the best way to think about digital currency is you already use a digital currency. Okay, what currency you use in the world is digital? right? More than 93% of the U.S. money supply is not in physical paper or coins. Sit in your bank account, you usually use some sort of credit or bank wires, you know, debit cards, etc. to interact with money. You don't have cash in your pocket. And, and that is becoming more and more prevalent, right? So it was at 90%, as at 93%, eventually it'll be at 100% cashless society at some point in the future. Bitcoin is also a digital currency. It happens to be decentralized, which it has some advantages, and it happens to be non-sensible, non-seizable, et cetera. So it has these kind of improvements on a digital currency, but at the end of the day, it is a digital currency just like the U.S. dollar. And so when you start to think about that, really what we're talking about is 
do you want to have a currency where it is inflationary and it's led by human decision-making, right? Interest rate decisions, quantitative easing, et cetera. Or do you want to opt for a disinflationary monetary schedule that is run by algorithms, right? And, and there's more transparency. People have a choice. They're just two separate digital currencies and people are going to choose one or the other. And so I think that's kind of a very clear cut example of blockchain technology being applied to currencies. Now, as I said before, I think every stock bond currency and commodity is going to be digital in the future. And so what we're talking about is really just organic, digitally native assets, which means that an asset is created in the digital world, it exists in the digital world, and it can be held or transacted in the digital world. And so when you have those digital files, right, that's all a digital asset is, a computer file. And so just like a music file, I could duplicate. And now I have two music files. So I have the same song, but I have two files. If I send it to you and another person, a music file, you don't know if you got the original music file or the duplicate. Yep. It's not a big deal with music files, but in if that computer file is supposed to represent a currency or a stock or a bond, actually being able to duplicate it is a big problem. And so what ends up occurring is just this idea of triple entry accounting, which is a blockchain. A blockchain is just the ability to automate triple entry accounting. And triple entry accounting is if you and I are in a transaction, I have a ledger, you have a ledger, and the public has a ledger. And so when you think about it that way, this has nothing to do with quote unquote blockchain technology. This has nothing to do with crypto. This has everything to do with we're moving to a digital world. We need digital assets. In order to have digital assets, we have to have triple entry account. And so when you kind of wrap your head around that, we then usually walk our institutional investors through this idea of like, what industry is not going to be affected by this? Literally every single one of them, this is, this is going to be a thing. The idea of having digital native assets and triple entry accounting will be pervasive across industries. And so when, when you see that, I think that that talk track is very different than the like, let's burn down Wall Street and decentralize the world. And it's much more, oh, all we're talking about is using the infrastructure of blockchain technology to build a world that is actually going to be run by algorithms and machines or it's just an automated world. And that's the part that gets me really excited because it's so far from, I think, the way that everyone else is thinking about this, but to me seems the most reasonable and, and the most inevitable. Is it the equivalent of going from, hey, I'm handwriting my ledger on a piece of paper and sharing this with my accountants to I'm taking that and putting it on an Excel spreadsheet that now I can like email to, you know, whatever, a thousand people, then to I'm going to share this on a Google sheet where anyone has access to seeing it at the same time to the next evolution of this, which is now it's 100%. The human does none of the work. The machines do all of the work. And now it's completely tracked with 100%. Accuracy. Yeah, the, the beauty of all of this is it literally comes down to transparency. And transparency creates not trust, but verifiability. And so the ability for me to verify whatever you say is incredibly important. I think that too many people are stuck in a world where they say, I trust that organization. I trust that counterparty. 
we don't need to trust anybody anymore, right? There's a saying in crypto, don't trust, verify. Yeah, right. And you can't verify without the transparency. And so that's really what all of this is. Uh, and it's uncomfortable for a lot of people, right? Imagine if I told you, you have to make your bank account actually transparent to anybody in the world that wants to look in there. Most people's first reaction is, why would I want to do that? Well, actually what it can do is it can actually make your wealth more secure, right? You don't have to trust that financial institution anymore because you're going to enter this decentralized system, right? I can actually do it in a way where no one knows it's your bank account. So it's pseudonymous, right? And you kind of walk through all these things that people in crypto know, but there is a mental framework that needs to be broken for many people who do not yet understand or believe in crypto but I think are likely to get there. They just have to get through that mental push in order to really get excited and, and, and want to dive in. Do you ever feel like that mental hurdle? You know, I, I recently listened to a podcast with Mark Andreessen where he was talking about how these changes in technology that sometimes I forget what he was, I forget the exact thing, but basically like the fax machine was created in like 1890 or something like that. And it took uh, literally a hundred years or it was like 1870 and it was like created like a hundred years for it actually to be commercially available. Do you ever feel like with blockchain technology or with cryptocurrency that we are actually 10 years away or 50 years away or a hundred years away from this being self-realized, but you know that at some point it is a certainty? Look, I, I think there's a very fine line between being delusional and seeing something before everyone else. And really it boils down to that fine line, whether you're right or not. And so you just gotta be hyper self-aware on are you right or not? And you'll never probably actually know until it's too late, either way. And so what you're really doing is you're playing a game of, I believe something that most other people don't believe. Is there a high probability that I'm right or a low probability that I'm right? And for you and I and everyone else, it's probably a different answer because I have different information. And so in that scenario, I may look at Bitcoin, for example, and say, I think that I have a 90% probability of being right. You may look at the same facts and say that you think I have a 10% probability of being right. It really comes down to what information you and I have, how we synthesize it, you know, what our uh, instincts are, all of this stuff. The game that I play is if you are going to have different thoughts than everyone else, you have to be right more times than you're wrong. But you also have to be comfortable knowing that you're going to be wrong, right? There are times where actually the crowd is right and you will be wrong. You got to be comfortable with that. And then you want to have a non-consensus thought where there's a high probability you are right. There's high upside when you are right. And there is low downside when you are wrong. And so for crypto, for example, that's the perfect like poster child. If we believe in crypto and Bitcoin before majority of people in the world, there's incredible upside. There is very low downside because we know what the floor, right? Whatever we risk as an investment is what we're going to lose. And then on top of it, 
the probability that supply and demand economics will continue to hold going into the future, for example, with Bitcoin, is pretty high. And the probability that there will be increased demand for that asset, in my personal opinion, is pretty high. And so you're basically betting on two things you think are high probability that leads to the outcome having a high probability, asymmetric return, high probability of being right, low downside risk. It's almost a no brainer in my mind. Right. And and so that's a very, very different approach than people who look at it and say, Oh, wow, there's a really low probability that this is going to be the global reserve currency. I don't even know how I would make money if it did. And I'm super risk averse. So any money that I lose uh, by making an investment would be devastating. That's two different people looking at the same asset with the same information and coming to two different conclusions. I love that asymmetry of, of kind of decision-making and outcomes because I think that's, uh, that's where opportunity lies. You know, people have kind of talked about investment strategies or different things as kind of like the grandma problem where it's like, could I explain this to my grandma? And I always thought that, that was an interesting way of looking at things, but ultimately something that, and shout out to all the grandmas out there. A lot of grandmas that listen, listen to uh, the mission. Shout out to uh, everybody listening. And I think that it's one of these interesting things because I think ultimately it doesn't really make sense, right? Because, you know, my mom, for example, wonderful grandma, is not a web developer. She doesn't understand how to, you know, code a website, for example. That does not mean that the functionality of a website is lost on her, right? I think that the technology behind cryptocurrency and all of this, I think sometimes gets dismissed because it's so complex that some folks are like, oh, no one will ever understand this. And it's like, yeah, you don't understand the technology. You understand what it does for the human being that it is helping. And when you hear use cases of people in other countries using Bitcoin or, hey, the government has control, like can seize my money at any time. They can't seize my Bitcoin, for example. You see these use cases that are so powerful and life-changing that you're like, man, this really makes sense, even though it's not super easy to, to explain. Do you think there's any truth in that kind of adage of you should be able to explain it super simply? Look, it, it is, uh, you know, whoever understands the best can explain it in the fewest words, right? I, I think that that is definitely... Very true, one. And two, uh, probably lost on a lot of people in, uh, in crypto. I, I constantly laugh. I call it the intellectual Olympics. I, I think that uh, people like Meltem and, and Joe Carlson, they call it the thought leadership Olympics. It's all the same thing, right? Yeah. It's the all competing on who's smarter. That doesn't really matter, right? It's who's more effective is what matters. And, uh, and I think the people who can speak in very simple terms and, and kind of distill these complex ideas into uh, something that's relatable and understandable, they're the ones who tend to be the best communicators and they tend to be the people who win. What about for B2B? I mean, I think the B2B world is a lot of people and, you know, we, and I think a lot of the CIOs and CTOs are kind of in the dipping their toe in the water, trying to figure out what the strategy is, standing still a little bit and surveying the scene. What does crypto mean for B2B? That's a great question. I I think that crypto itself is one piece. And so I think you're going to see a ton of these corporations create tokens, create uh, credits, you know, all this kind of 
things you're seeing from the Facebooks, the JP Morgans, et cetera. It's the ability to move value in a more efficient, cheaper, faster way, right? And so I think you'll see that for sure. When it comes to blockchain, again, it's the ability to leverage a new type of technology, basically a new database technology to accomplish their business goals. So I think you'll see you know, a ton of that. The, the question I always throw back to every corporation is, what are all the ways that you could do this that are inferior to using a blockchain? Yeah, that's a great question. Right? And what ends up happening is, I don't know, 50% of the time, they come up with all the ways they could do it, and they realize that one of those ways is actually better than using a blockchain. But the other 50% of the time, the blockchain is the best solution. Right. And so I think that that's where we are in this is everyone realizes this is powerful technology and a new way of thinking about things. How do they leverage? And some people are running around with the hammer looking for the nail. And then other people are saying, I have a very real problem that this solves and I'm going to implement it in a nuanced way. And I'm going to capture a bunch of value with it. And so in the B2B world uh, specifically, the what, one of the curses of being a large corporation is you have too much money and too many resources. Yeah. <laughs> right it's almost a benefit to have small teams with not very many resources because innovation is merely the product of a necessity, right? You have to be innovative when you're small because you can't compete on dollars. You can't compete on headcount, right? You, you, you can't compete on your legal uh, documentation, et cetera. You have to out innovate. And so I think that that is, um, you know, one area I spent a lot of time looking at and thinking about is these large corporations are actually at a disadvantage when it comes to innovation because of those large dollars and large uh, access to resources. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think the blending of some of these technologies that we'll see very shortly is where you're going to see the exponential returns. I mean, all of them on their own are going to have exponential returns. But when you start to blend these things like biometric, like take healthcare, for example, like biometrics is going to be huge, right? Because instead of going into, you know, your your doctor and them saying like, what's your date of birth to make sure that they're you? It's like, we can just use your fingerprint or retina scanning or all these sort of things that we have readily available now. Then you add that into blockchain and we know exactly what doctor you know, like you were in the army, I was in the army. How many doctors treated you in your time in the army? I mean, you know, potentially 50 or something like that. I have no record of any of the people that ever treated me. And it's wild. It's like, that is something that I think, you know, 20 years into the future, we're going to look back and be like, how did we not have a ledger of all of these transactions that happened in the most important thing in my life, which is my personal health? So I think that those type of things where we can start to blend these technologies together to have a super, uh, like a, not super accurate, a one with 100% accuracy, exactly the trail of events that have happened thus far in our lives is just so exciting for me. I mean, it's just such an exciting time to look at, <laughs> what a time to be alive. Uh, but no, it's just such an exciting time to look at this and say, all of the things that we were never able to keep 100% certain that I could keep certain of my own accord rather than relying on other people to do that, we can now keep in a frictionless way. I, I completely agree. I think uh, you're, you're spot on with that one. So kind of final question here on, uh, on some of the, you know, I don't need you to predict the future or anything like that, but, you know, Bitcoin has, has had ups and downs. You've kind of 
said uh, a bunch of, by the way, follow Pomp on Twitter. He's absolutely great at a Pompliano. You said a bunch of stuff. One of your favorite sayings is, uh, you know, long Bitcoin short the bankers. What, what, how'd you come up with this? Why do you say it? Uh, and what, what's the, what's the rationale here? Yeah. Look, a couple of things. One is, um, the first time that I ever tweeted it, I didn't even think about it. I literally was just sitting there. I forget actually what the first tweet was even about. And I just fired off the ending to a tweet saying long Bitcoin short the bankers. And it was kind of, you know, tongue in cheek. I knew people would get rallied up about it, but I really didn't think anything about it. And the response was overwhelming. Yeah. People just ran. They started tweeting it at me. Every time a bank did anything, they started tweeting back that phrase. So I said it again. Then I said it again. Then it just took on a life of its own, frankly. And, and really what, you know, it means to me, because I think the beauty of that sentence is it can mean something different to anybody right? What it means to you is different than what it means to me. And the simplicity of the message is really powerful. But to me, what it means is there's a new system, right? That system is based on a deflationary asset as the single unit of account. It's run by algorithms and machines. It is built for the future and exists in a digital world. And the bankers, you know, you kind of have this image in your head of like, a bunch of old white guys with top hats sitting in the back room smoking yeah. cigars and trying to figure out how to screw people over. <laughs> right? and, and so the quote unquote bankers, it's kind of like us versus them. Like who the hell is them? Right. It, yeah. It's this nameless, faceless thing, but short the bankers, nobody likes the banks. Right. And, and you don't like the banks for a whole bunch of reasons. They consistently have one of the worst brand, you know, recognition or, or, or kind of brand sentiment across all industries, year in, year out. And it's because they're dealing with people's money and people don't like when somebody messes with their money. And so the short the bankers is just short the old system, right? It's we're moving to a new system. I think that the new system is more powerful and better positioned for the future than the old system. And so that sentence really encapsulates that to me. But But the paragraph or the sentence means something different to everybody. And I think that's why so many people have been attracted to it and kind of run with it as this like rallying cry. Yeah. And I think people, I think there's some sentiment around the fact that we have no financial literacy in school. We are never taught how to manage money ever in our, like, you know, in public education, you're never taught how to manage money. And you wake up one day and you have to get a credit card and you have to do all this sort of stuff. Uh, in order to build credit and to do all of this. And you just kind of look at the whole system and you're like, wait a second, who signed off on this? Like, who is the person who said that this is all a good idea? Uh, you know, 27%, that seems like a lot. And I think that that's, I, you know, I, I hate I hate the phrase millennial. I think it's, or the way that it's used, I think it's just silly. Like, young people do young people stuff and, you know, age groups act similarly depending how old they are for all the course of time. Like young people want to get out and meet other young people and do all that stuff. So I think it's sometimes overblown, but I'll say that I think that some of that comes from there's got to be a better way. And if I need to raise a family and to make these financial decisions and to do stuff, maybe there's a better way to do this. Have you seen that this kind of outpouring of support is people that kind of latched on to whether it's blockchain or crypto or Bitcoin because they're like, it's the life raft that is like, this 
is a better way than what is currently going on. I don't know if this is the thing or if it is a thing, but it's better than what I have now. Yeah, I find that um, a lot of times people, one, are just looking for something better. And then two, they're looking for uh, what they believe will be a sustainable thing. And then lastly, they're looking for community, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it's not lost on me that the U.S. dollar is based on belief, right? If you, I, or somebody else uses the U.S. dollar, it's because I believe it has value. You believe it has value. You're willing to accept it in exchange for whatever you're giving me, right? Well, the same thing happens with Bitcoin. And so the community, the common belief in the value is just as important with Bitcoin as it is with the U.S. dollar. And so I think that there's you know, a whole host of reasons why somebody is attracted to crypto, but that is definitely uh, three of them that are probably not spoken about as much, but, but have just as much merit as any other reason. Palm, you're the man. Let's do, can we do some uh, lightning round questions? Super quick questions, one or two word answers, whatever you got. Are you ready? Let's do it. What music are you listening to right now? Recent song. Ooh, recent music that I've listened to. I really don't listen to tons of music. Um, I listen to uh, pretty much audiobooks as much as I can. But music, I'm like an old school classic guy, man. Anything like Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, uh, even like some Jay-Z, and anything that is uh, kind of tried and true uh, when it comes to uh, hip-hop is, uh, is usually my go-to. Favorite uh, audiobook you've listened to recently? Man, there are so many. I have to say that one that um, most people probably don't talk about, but I, I really did enjoy uh, David Goggins' new book. My girlfriend, uh, Plina Marinova, suggested it to me. I'm going to forget the name of it, but it's basically like a, You Can't Hurt Me or something. I, I just find him fascinating. Uh, he's a, uh, a former Navy SEAL who does like ultra marathons now, and he's got to be one of the most mentally tough people on the planet. And he really walks you through uh, his life, why he's so mentally tough, how he got there. And, and when you read the book, I think it's just, you know, kind of puts you on edge and, and anything that can, uh, that can help me kind of sharpen that knife a little bit. I'm always a big fan of. Yeah. It's can't hurt me, master your mind and defy the odds. We'll, we'll link it up in the show notes. It's great. What's your favorite one day getaway? And I'm a, I'm a big, uh, just kind of schedule nothing. So it's not even somewhere like I have to go as much as it is. I usually do it on Saturdays, but just a day with absolutely nothing scheduled and, you know, kind of sleep till you wake up. Don't have any plans. If you want to go eat, you go eat. If you want to go do something, you go do something. If you want to do nothing, you do nothing. Or you want to sit and watch a movie, do that. Just kind of the, the ability to uh, have true and ultimate freedom is, uh, is usually pretty satisfying for me. And so uh, I'd have to say it's that. What person or like founder that you've met over the past couple years were you just blown away by that, uh, that they're working on something really cool? I think Mike Cagney, his new company, Figure. So Mike is the former uh, founder of uh, SoFi, built it into a $4 billion plus company. He's now working on um, how to use blockchain technology to uh, tokenize assets. Um, I, I've just been incredibly impressed with his ability as an operator, the ability to kind of scale quickly, his ability to kind of command and, and 
Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at Mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, awesome. and Katera. Anything else? Work with Anything us we miss? Because we produce stuff for the audience. Find them to learn more and get our case studies. On, on check Twitter, out mission.org up, slash studio podcast. If you're tired of media Ooh, and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, a, uh, if you want an antidote to all that chaos, lately, you're at the right because, uh, place. Subscribe here into our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each and morning, so, uh, you'll get a newsletter every, that will every help now you and then I start your morning in and your day. Catch her off right jamming out to. We haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, so we've been on a Queen kick lately. But yeah, I'm with you. Always old school hip hop is is always always on there. Got to, got to. So, all right, man. Listen, this is this is a lot of fun. I appreciate you you inviting me and let me know whatever I can do to help. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.